welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And the idea for this episode on women and street art and graffiti first came to me when trend pieces on quote-unquote female Banksies Mm. first started popping up. Um, because for listeners who aren't aware, Banksy is the most famous street artist in the world. No one knows who he or she is. Um, but in more recent years, there's been a growing recognition of women in the game. And a lot of times they are posed as female Banksies rather than just being discussed as women doing their thing. Yeah, or just like street artists. Yeah. I think uh, little irks a successful female street artist more than being sometimes called a female street artist or being called a female Banksy. Yeah. Because it's like, hey, I w- w- take Banksy out of the equation. Can I not just have my my success and talent judged on its own merit? I mean, I get I get the headline writers trying to provide context for what the article's about, especially if you don't know who these street artists are. Um, but I can also totally get these lady artists' frustration with being compared to Banksy, who's possibly a dude, but also just continually being called out for their gender. Yeah, I mean, it's something that uh, reminds me of listicles of lady podcasters. Mm -hmm. There's been so much attention post-serial and uh, Sarah Koenig on women in podcasting, which, of course... We love, um, but it would be like all of these listicles saying the new female Mark Marins, uh, which would probably grate on our nerves a little bit more than just being like women in podcasting. Here are some things to listen to. Yeah, I can't grow a goatee like that. <laughs> and that little soul patch. That's an aggressive oh, soul is patch. It, he does have a goatee too, right? Am I thinking of the right? Yeah, he's got like a little soul patch thing going on and some, some bearded Inside hair. the, okay. Cool. Yeah. I enjoy Mark Maron. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. We're not- <laughs> His discussion with Gloria Steinem was great. But back to graffiti, because should we just make this episode about podcasting? (laughs) We could. (laughs) We do know it well, probably better than street art and graffiti. But as soon as we started reading about the history of women in street art and what women in street art have to say today, it intersected so many stuff mom never told you topics. I mean, the, the very issue of being labeled a female fill in the blank, wanting to be judged on your own merit rather than your gender. And also the issue of taking up public spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the root causes behind why there might be fewer women doing street art than men, a lot of which have to do with street harassment, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, so just for a, a very mini history of street art and graffiti. And yeah, I know that I'm kind of using them synonymously and that's probably not technically correct, but I, I'm just, I'm using them to, to encompass both graffiti as we think of it uh, in terms of the more vandalism style painting and then street art, which is a little more like muralistic mm-hmm. to possibly make up a word. Um, You're so muralistic. <laughs> very muralistic. Um, but over at the toast, a graffiti PhD researcher, Alison Stein, notes that women were quite possibly history's first graffiti artists because dun da 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 Cave paintings. Take, taking it way back. I know. Going way back. Yeah. In 2013, archaeologist Dean Snow of Pennsylvania State University published a widely covered study suggesting that women made most of the earliest cave paintings based on handprint analysis. You know nothing, Dean Snow. <laughs> Get it? That's a Game of Thrones reference. Instead of Jon Snow. No, he knows. Was- Dean Snow knows a lot. Okay. John Snow, however. John Snow, not so much. But Dean Snow and tiny hands. Tiny little lady hands doing cave paintings. Tiny hands. Could be the first graffiti. And I also enjoyed a timeline, a brief timeline of graffiti over at Time Out New York because, I mean, it's sort of a, a tricky thing to even track down because graffiti is so temporal. I mean, it's often there and then it's gone, obviously, and usually done 
uh, in the cover of darkness mm. and it's done anonymously. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't, for instance, know who Banksy is. Still. Still don't know. God, I lie awake at night. <laughs> who could it be? <laughs> Ever since I saw Exit Through the Gift Shop, I haven't been able to sleep. I know. It's, I'm starting to go insane, actually. <laughs> but tagging has been around sporadically, according to this piece we read, since the World War II era. Apparently, in the 1940s, GIs were fans of this tag, Kilroy Was Here, mm-hmm. with a little stick figure face peering over a wall and with a big the nose. nose. Yeah. And it, what's funny is I remember being a kid and drawing that and having no idea of its of its history, of its little tagging family tree. But what's so funny is that its, its origins are pretty murky, but Kilroy has cousins in the UK known as Mr. Chad or Chad. I'll have to tell my dad that, being that he's a Chad. Um, not a hanging chat though. Oh, oh, referencing politics. A long time election ago. year. Bringing it back. Um, and apparently the Australian equivalent is, uh, foo was here. I mean, I guess if you, uh, are hanging out in the trenches, you know, you need, you need something to do with all that time. Over the little bit of skimming we did about Kilroy or foo or Chad's history, it seems like it was just this thing. This phenomenon that started happening, other people saw it done, they picked up on it, American soldiers, British soldiers, Australian soldiers were all in the same place at the same time, so they would start adding to each other's cartoons, and it's taken on different names in different countries and regions, um, but it, it seems to be just a funny thing to deface a random, unsuspecting piece of property. So it sounds like it's something that went viral pre-internet. <laughs> Ooh. Um, apparently, after famed jazz musician Charlie Parker died, his hardcore fans would tag Bird Lives uh, on, in public spaces. Um, but really, tagging took off more in the 1960s. You would see it sometimes pop up with um, student protests that were going on that would usually have more anarchist slogans that would be tagged in public spaces. But I, I love this. The tagging trend really started in Philly with a guy named Daryl McRae, whose tag was cornbread. That's such a long name to tag, <laughs> right? He would just spray paint cornbread and on walls and such. And, and the Thus, graffiti tagging was born. I like to imagine that he was just insane and hungry. <laughs> I know. For something that is, you know, considered such a, you know, the seedy vandalism that these uh, sketchy kids might do after dark, that the first known tag was uh, such a such an innocent thing as cornbread. Cornbread. Just cornbread. But then in 1971, graffiti, as well as street art, as we think of it today, started to get more mainstream attention when the New York Times published an article on Taki 183. And Taki was just this random guy who lived in New York, and he would write Taki 183 everywhere. And then people started tagging on top of that. I think the headline of the New York Times piece was something along the lines of Taki 183 gets uh, new pen pals because they started noticing it in all of these spaces, much to the chagrin of the New York government at the time that was really trying to like clean up the city. So they like really hated all those graffitos. Um, That's my made up word for people who do graffiti. Um, But tagging just simply scrawling your nickname gave way to the development of wild style. Wait, you mean the girl character from the Lego movie? No. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Um, Wild style are those interlocking bubble letters that are usually huge and that artists first scrawled across subway cars and other massive public canvases. Those big bubble letters. Yeah, and one of the people... Doing these huge bubble letters, putting their name in bubble letters was Lady Pink. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1979, we get Lady Pink. She starts tagging at 15 years old and she's usually cited as one of the first and only women graffiti artists at the time. And notably, though, she was featured in 1983's Wild Style, which showcased New York's intersecting graffiti hip hop and breakdancing scenes and subcultures. And she is really vocal still, 
about the macho culture that pervaded street art at the time. Uh, she said, when I first started, women were still trying to prove themselves through the 70s that women could do everything guys could do. The feminist movement was growing very strong. And as a teenager, I think it affected me without realizing that I was a young feminist. The more guys said you can't do that, the more I had to prove them wrong. I had to hold it up for all my sisters who looked up to me to be brave and courageous and to prove that I could do what the guys would do. She goes on to say, it reflects what the art world in general is. 80% white males. So you have to fight tooth and nail, bitch and scream, be loud and be large to get that respect. And honestly, that's what you hear from a lot of women street artists and just artist artists, even today. Um, but really quickly, going back to the 70s and early 80s, while Lady Pink, because she is still so active and so vocal today, um, she's usually cited, like you said, as one of the first. But she wasn't the only one, even before... She got started tagging. There was a literal tag team named Barbara 62 and Eva 62 that were apparently prolific in New York in the early 70s. And for some reason, the tag Barbara 62 just really makes me chuckle because I just imagine Barbara like some like secretary after hours, (laughs) like big shouldered uh, blazers. Like Jane Fonda's character in 9 to 5. Exactly. I picture her out there. Maybe 62 is the family name. Perhaps. Yeah, maybe it's like a mom and a daughter. Oh, I you know? would like that. Uh, and then in the 1980s, you have some women getting into the subway riding as well, like Lady Heart, Anna, Dawn, and Bambi. And those were their tags, not just their... They might have also been their names. But I love how basic it was at that time. Where it was yeah. like, what should my tag be? Um, well, my name's Anna. <laughs> okay. That'll do. But of course, that Bambi is not to be confused with... The Bambi of modern day street art, who's often called the female Banksy. Ooh, but don't call her the female Banksy to her face. I know. Um, but we do have to get a, give a quick shout out from the early 90s to Ms. Mags, who was a mysterious figure. We don't really know all that much about her, but apparently she had a very influential burner style, which refers to using really bright colors. So even though she kind of faded back into the shadows, kind of literally in the scene, um, she definitely left her mark. And by the early 80s, graffiti had really begun to attract legitimacy and money, money, money within the New York art world, thanks in part to Patty Astor's Fun Gallery, which opened in 1983 and featured people like Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did I say that right? I, I went to the pronunciation. Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, th- I found that really interesting. That's something that I had no inkling about that street art so early on attracted so much money and attention from the fine art world. Well, cause I'm sure people were like, what in the F is this stuff? But the fact that they immediately monetized it. Which is something that you still see today with people like Banksy, with people like the modern day Bambi, not the original Bambi, making so much money from like celebrities who just want a cool wall in their house. Oh, absolutely. Um, Swoon is one of the most successful female street artists out there today as well. And in a profile on her in the New York Times, she said, I make a lot of money, <laughs> but I also spend a lot of money to make my art. All right. I mean, it's her and her work is incredible. And this leads us into the fact that while the old school history of graffiti is just so barren of women, aside from Lady Pink and and old Babs, (laughs) Bab 62, um, there are a growing number today. Of course, there are no official statistics because Duh, it's street art and graffiti. Um, but anecdotally, women are covering public spaces around the world like never before. Yeah, uh, the godmother of street art, whose photographer Martha Cooper, said that she's noticed an uptick since the 1970s. She told The Independent, before women might have made up like one-tenth of a percent, and now maybe it's one percent. Which is... Still not that many, but a lot more than it used to be. For sure. <laughs> for sure. And it helps, too, that we that we've seen more and more women over time be more vocal about their street art. 
Yeah, I mean, and and perhaps because there were so few women to begin with, I mean, really just a handful, and because the entire subculture has been seen as so masculine to the point of macho, women's participation, even if it might be, say, at 1% today, has been hailed as a gender revolution by some people. Yeah, well, so then if we're seeing a gender revolution, what's the deal with why aren't there more? Why are they still just 1%? Well, let's talk about the subculture for a second. Uh, that was something that Alison Stein, the PhD researcher writing over at The Toast, pointed out Um how in the same way that skateboarding culture, which we talked about, has been traditionally not so friendly to the ladies, graffiti culture and street art culture has similarly pushed women to the side for a long time. Well, yeah, not to mention, of course, the potential street harassment, the fact that you've got to be comfortable going out at night, you know, trespassing, hopping over fences, getting dirty, like all of these things essentially that girls are told not to do. Oh, and climbing up onto billboards and water towers and other really high spaces that when I think about it, it starts to give me butterflies in my stomach because I have a severe fear of heights. But as Stein notes over at the toast, even the language of graffiti culture points out how masculine it is as a tradition. She notes how, for instance, uh, rubbing wet paint together to smear someone else's work and ruin it is called doming, which comes from condom. And traditionally, the word king refers to an experienced artist. And when we just think of what does a graffiti artist look like? Oh, it's like a dude in a hoodie. Yeah. And there, there's a street artist who goes by the name of L, who sort of echoed what I was saying earlier about how society just tells girls and young women that like, this is not what you do. You're not dirty. You don't go out at night. You shouldn't go out by yourself. You shouldn't deface property. And she said that that was actually a motive for her to get more involved and more visible in street art because she wanted to be a role model for girls who could participate. Yeah. She said that she thinks the reason more women aren't street artists is straight up because we assume that it's something that only dudes can do. And a notable thing about L that some articles do focus on, I think a, a little bit too much, but here, I'm going to do it here for a second too, is how um, she herself just in her presentation and physique is very feminine. I mean, conventionally, she just looks like a model, mm-hmm. like a straight up model. Um, she's very attractive. There are um, kind of sexier photos of her, on her website and a lot of her work portrays women like attractive, powerful kind of goddess esque women. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she definitely hews very much to the feminine. Um, Roger Gastman, who's the author of the history of American graffiti says that there are fewer women in graffiti, street art and skateboarding just because that's the way it is, basically. Hmm. He goes on to say that, you know what, if girls want to get involved, just get involved. Just go do it. Just go do it. Yeah, there are no like institutional issues. There's nothing really like holding you back technically, which I have a feeling that's easier for a guy to say because the guy going out at night and cutting locks and going into, you know, possibly scary spaces might might be a different matter than doing that as a woman. Yeah, this is something that Caroline Caldwell over at Hyperallergic sort of talks about, that the lack of women in street art and graffiti culture is linked to broader issues of fewer women in the art world in general, that male artists are likelier to get representation at galleries, their work sells for more than female artists' work does, not to mention, of course, again, the potential harassment and assault that many women face on the streets. She wrote, how many women have actually thought, there's no point in pursuing street art because my work will be outshined by men? She says, I'm willing to bet that a lot more women have thought, 
I was verbally harassed or catcalled or stalked or objectified in public today and sneaking around the streets is not worth the risk of sexual assault. And she highlighted street art like that of Tatiana Fazalita who stopped telling women to smile street art campaign directly addresses that kind of street harassment and has also gone viral on the Internet. I have a yeah. feeling a lot of listeners have seen these images and I have seen those images as well in downtown Atlanta. And I got really nerdily excited. Yeah, like, oh, there it is. She came here specifically to do that, right? That's uh-huh. not somebody else putting it up. No. She came here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great thing to see. And I feel like so many, I, I, it's a great conversation starter. I'll put it that way. I feel like there are a lot of, of men still who are like, what's wrong with telling a woman to smile? It's like, well, okay. But here's the thing. Like we talked about at the top of the podcast, while women like Swoon and Elle and Bambi, who we haven't even uh, really talked about at this point, are incredibly successful and more women than ever before are really getting into street art and getting recognition for their street art. There's still this issue of them being constantly marginalized for their gender, Mm -hmm. a la being referred to as the female Banksies. Who's going to be the female Banksy? Is this the female Banksy? Here are 10 women who are better than Banksy. Yeah. And Caldwell at Hyperallergic talks about how when you discuss street artists purely in relation to their gender or call them female Banksies, this basically shuts down, she says, a more nuanced appreciation of art made by women and takes the control away from the artist in shaping her own narrative. And, and that's what we saw in a lot of these lady street artist trend pieces. And I, I do realize a bit of the irony of this and the fact that we are referring to them as women street artists as we talk about them. But I think Caldwell has a point in that let's talk about them from sort of a broader perspective and not just write a trend piece that is like, here's 13 women street artists, maybe have it framed in here's 13 amazing street artists. And this is a similar conversation that we've had about women in writing Mm -hmm. as well. And the whole thing of, you know, cordoning women off to chiclet and that if it's something, if a book is written by a woman, then it's for women. Whereas something that Jonathan Franzen writes is for everybody. And this is something, I mean, speaking of writing that we talked about in our science fiction episode too, that there was this all women sci-fi anthology, which on the one hand, like great. Yeah. Feature amazing women writers. But on the other hand, do we need to ghettoize women's writing? I mean, it's science fiction. It's not like it doesn't need to be separated from the work that men do. And I think that's the argument that a lot of people make about street art. Like, you know, do some of these artists, whether it's women or there was one guy who turned down the opportunity to be in a showing, a gallery showing that was all Jewish artists. It's like, do I necessarily want to pigeonhole myself that way? Would it be better to be featured alongside a whole diverse slew of of artists so that you can see that like gender, race, age, these things don't matter when it comes to creating art. Yeah, I mean, because it also revolves around, you know, the these issues that come up in a lot of our podcasts as well in terms of the idea that women create things differently than men do. And I mean... (sighs) And I mean, sometimes they do. Sometimes there is a female artist creating something that's all like pink and flowers. But in the next instance, they might be painting something that's like super considered, quote unquote, masculine. But they're not inherently creating different art, a different quality of art because they are women. Well, and if someone makes the pink and flowers, why is that devalued below something that might be harsher or more aggressive in the way that it's sure. created as well. I mean, that's the thing. Like, as we started reading these articles, I mean, it, it really does intersect so many common issues that I certainly hadn't thought of before in just looking at all of the incredible street art that's all around Atlanta. But I mean, you can clearly peel away so many different layers that have to do not only with how we judge uh, 
men and women's artistic work and creative work differently and value it differently a lot of times. Um, there's also, too, I think the aspect of what happens when art is created through the male gaze versus the female gaze. And that was mm-hmm. something that came up in our episode on the female nude mm-hmm. and how a lot of those um those paintings and sculptures at the time were made by men and the poses of nude women painted by dudes were much different than how women depict the, you know, similar kinds of images. Yeah, which makes it all the more frustrating when you read a headline that appeared in The Independent, which is In Search of a Female Banksy, which makes me want to throw my notes in the air because why, why, why do we... What, why? All of that part of, like, the female Banksy part and the in search of a female Banksy. Like, it's okay to just talk about street artists who are women. We don't have to be saying that we're in search of some woman who's equivalent to Banksy, who may or may not be a man. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, and and within that article, In Search of a Female Banksy, they name-checked Ico. Who had done a show with Banksy? I think that she's uh, actually featured in Exit Through the Gift Shop. And even in talking about her work, which she is very uh, loud about how much she enjoys being a woman in a boy's world, kind of. Um, but it still framed all of her work just around Banksy. It didn't kind of let her stand on her own two feet. Um, or note that, for instance, she was the first woman to paint the legendary Bowery Wall in New York, which is like in the street art world. That's a huge honor. Instead, it was like, oh, well, Banksy likes this little <laughs> lady over here. And look how feminine all of her her pieces are. And that's something that really vexes uh-huh. Vexta, who's cited as Melbourne's first female street artist. Yeah, she basically talks about how she's sick of uh, her work and other street artists' work always being considered through the perspective of whether something is feminine or not and what that means. And she's also one of those people who talks about the extremes of, you know, either you have no women or like one woman in a group of street artists or it's all women. It seems to be that there's there's no just gender blind street art going on. Yeah. And she says that whether your work is about femininity or not, it will always just be considered about femininity. Whereas male street artists work is not going to constantly be seen as like a reflection of masculinity. It's like, oh, that's a, you know, that's the queen right there. That's Kate Moss with different colored hair. Which I think harkens back to one of this podcast's themes that masculinity and masculine and men and male is seen as normal and neutral, whereas something created by a woman is seen as gendered, which was something that London based Bambi said to The Guardian in an article, which I think was headlined the female Banksy. Uh, Bambi said, quote, this is a perfect example that we live in a male dominated society at the moment. Men set the benchmark and women are judged by that. Bambi being the one who has no interest in being called the female Banksy. Although I get it to a point because her style is very reminiscent of Banksy. But still. Well, and yeah, and she, I think I mentioned this earlier, she's also making bank. (laughs) Oh, so much money. Off of her art. Brad Pitt and other celebrities have bought her stuff. And there's all this speculation, like, is it MIA? Is it like any of these like singers and famous people masquerading around as a street artist? Because her identity is also super secret. And when it comes to the female street art issue, South African artist Faith 47 doesn't want to be labeled even a female street artist at all, because as she told The Independent, my attitude has always just been that I focus on my work and not what race or gender I am. It's all about the work, so I intentionally don't see my gender as an issue. And if you look at her pieces... You, it would be difficult to read any specific gender into it unless you knew that it was created by a woman. I would also like to point out 
<laughs> that the names like Faith 47 and Barbara 62 really remind me of like AOL instant messenger names. <laughs> So true. <laughs> Just taking your name and tacking on like your birth oh, year. That's so <laughs> embarrassing because my tag would be too tired. Oh, three. <laughs> Whoa. Was that was that indicating that you were like so over it? Something like that. I don't know. I was trying to be cool. I was trying to seem laid back. <laughs> like I'm too tired for homework. Psych. I'm in all AP classes. Oh, Conger. Well, listeners, we've got a lot more to talk about, so stay tuned while we take a quick break. But speaking, though, of Banksy, whom we've mentioned so many times, uh, one funny theory that popped out is that Banksy is not a dude. We just, like, assume that Banksy is a dude, but why should we do that? Perhaps Banksy is also a female street artist. Um, and she's not the only one to suggest this, but we read a piece by Kristen Caps over at City Labs um, saying that due to the prominence of women in Banksy's work, which that is notable how often women are portrayed and not in super sexy poses, uh, in Banksy's pieces, and also the social justicey aspect to a lot of his or her work, and Banksy's interest in message versus just repeatedly tagging the same image, like uh, Shepherd Fairies, Andre the Giant, the Obey Andre, um, suggest more of a feminine, mm. you know, person behind behind all this work. And who knows? But I think what I love about this, I hope we never find out who Banksy is. I hope we never find out because I love the idea that Banksy could be a man or a woman and that like maybe Banksy is a man and and he is using what people consider a more feminine tack. You know, or maybe it's a woman and she's out there being super effing successful. Like either way, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I don't think that we need to know whether Banksy is a he or she. I think Banksy's a dude personally. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to like put a flag in the ground either way. I, you know, I don't have, I don't have enough skin in the game. I'm just going to keep using weird like metaphors and things. Um, but I, I like the idea that Banksy is a mascot for sort of, I don't know, cross-gender street art creation. Yeah. I mean, one thing that Kristen Caps's piece did make me think about was how, oh, it's true that if you look at the aesthetic of a lot of Banksy's work, I mean, and, and at this point, obviously, Banksy is not just one person. There's like the ringleader, but I mean, it takes a team of people to pull off the kind of um, installations that Banksy does. Notice I'm I'm now avoiding pronouns altogether. Um <laughs> But I hadn't considered how it is a more, quote unquote, feminine aesthetic and presentation. And also, you know, the the how often women show up in those pieces as well. I was like, oh, OK. It kind of made me like Banksy even more. But if we knew for certain that Banksy was a woman, like, would it change how we thought about this art? I know. Would it would it have changed Banksy's trajectory? And would it have changed the value of yeah. the art, too? Because that was one thing that I hadn't thought about either, just because I'm not in the art world, the visual art world, um, is how there is a wage gap within art sales, too, a gender wage gap. Yeah. Um, but Banksy aside, um, talking a little bit more about this gender aspect, pretty much Everything that we read describes these women's work in gendered terms. Like I mentioned earlier, how Elle's work is often described as super feminine. And it does look, you know, super feminine partially because it's, you know, you have like a naked, attractive woman in a goddess pose on a wall. I think that qualifies as feminine. Yeah. I mean, I guess that would depend on who's creating the art. If it were a dude creating it, would it just be objectifying? I know. Would it just be sexy then? Yeah. It also jumped out to me how The Guardian described Australian Vexta's pieces because 
Vexa has gone on record as saying, you know, I really don't wish to be labeled as a female street artist. Stop putting me in these boxes. And then in that piece, the Guardian descri- describes the, quote, strongly feminine form in her paintings, mm-hmm. portraying graceful female figures often in flight or suspended midair. And the image that they used in the article to illustrate this strongly feminine form I mean, was it was of a a realistically portrayed woman in mid-flight? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That's what Vexta says is behind her art. She said that she wanted to make stuff that wasn't just a caricature of a woman. That she herself wants to be a role model to younger girls because women's work is so often marginalized. So yes, like she wants to portray because you know, and so many street artists say this that we're bombarded with hypersexualized advertising, TV, all this stuff all day long. So it's great that she wants to portray this beautiful imagery that happens to also include women who aren't hypersexualized. But that doesn't mean she necessarily wants to be called out for the femininity aspect. Right. And and I also, you know, listeners, I don't want to come across as marginalizing artwork more like Elle's that is overtly feminine in the in the same way as like with our um chef episode, not to denigrate pastry chefs and the fine art that that is just because it's the the female dominated sector of that industry. It's more questioning why we would put all of these women in this one box. Does it limit how we see them and also their potential professional trajectory if we are only able to describe their work in one particular way, which is feminine. Yeah, like how the Independent said that Aiko is creating overtly feminine art because she uses, or will they say she's not afraid to use, pinks and purples and glitter. Which, I mean, and, and in that phrasing, isn't afraid to use pinks, purples, and glitters also suggests that, well... Well, should she be afraid? Is that a brave thing to use? Uh, You're so brave. A, a glittery palette. I, I really liked, though, what street artist Maya Hayuk told The Guardian about how um, her art, which is very geometric, is motivated by sort of <laughs> counteracting what she describes as male artists urged to scent mark their territory with tags because hers is, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's very abstract and you wouldn't necessarily know like who made it unless you know her style very well. Um, and I thought that that was an interesting observation of hers. I hadn't thought of tagging as scent marking, but oh, totally, it makes sense. Two tired oh three <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> What would your what would your tag look like? Would it just be like a sleeping Kilroy? <laughs> I think it would just be a really lazy two tired O three with the dripping paint. So yeah, just, and like, just too like, tired to care. It trails out off. at yeah. the end. Yeah, totally. And even in the description though, uh street artist Kashink, whose work I really like. She makes these um kind of otherworldly four eyed dudes. Um in the description of her work in a roundup over at the Huffington Post, it says she challenges gender on and off the walls. And maybe I just need more context. Maybe I just don't know enough about Kashink and her artist statement and all of that. But in, in seeing the f- photo that they use, I was like, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm seeing that. Are they saying, do you think they're saying she's challenging gender on the walls because she's not? taking the tack that's pink and purples and glitter that she's just painting like what would be called unisex art or art. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. More so th- just by virtue of the fact that she's not using pink. She's <laughs> challenging gender norms. Oh my God. Look at that woman. She's using blue. It's androgynous. What are we going to do about that? Um, but the thing is though, gender and messages of female empowerment are very real and very important in street art, especially as we think about their function in overtaking public spaces. And to me, the the public aspect of street art is one of the, the main reasons I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, because women overtaking without permission often walls and what else do you paint on, Caroline? <laughs> Billboards, etc. Um is such a feminist act in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and especially taking it back and reclaiming it in the way that Maya Hayuk describes it from 
this, uh, the more male scent marking mm-hmm. kind of style. Well, that's why somebody like Afghanistan's Shamsia Hassani is so fascinating to me. She's typically hailed as uh, that country's first female street artist. And she often talks about how she intends her art to be a conversation about women's status. And she says, as a woman, it's difficult to be out on the street by myself. Women often get harassed and it's not very comfortable. And and she can't even go out at night. This isn't an issue of like, oh, you might be hurt or harassed if you go out after dark. This is purely she's facing verbal taunts and abuse just in the daytime because she is a woman creating art outside. And And she talks a lot about how Street art is new to Afghanistan. It's, it, you know, there's no laws against it. It's not like there's any precedent for how to handle this. But just by virtue of the fact that she is a woman out there creating and out there actively encouraging other Afghans to participate in this, that there are a lot of men who are just not taking to that. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what a notable thing when we look at street art and especially how it's covered um, outside the United States, because when women are making it, there often are those very strong themes of highlighting, you know, women's treatment or marginalization or even violence against women. Um, if we go over to Senegal, for instance, Dianaba Sidibe, who is recognized as that country's first female street artist, similarly uses her art to raise attention to women's marginalization in society. And the same thing happens if we travel over to Colombia, where street art is legal. Uh, Bastardia is known for her feminist themes, and strong female imagery. Yeah, she said, as a woman, I've had to fight against these types of realities, against the fact that people want to assault me, that I'm not taken into consideration for a lot of things. And I've had to fight against a world that is still turning mostly around men. And so there is that motivation there to, yes, I am going to call attention to my gender and my womanhood because it's sort of under attack still. Yeah, it seems like across... Uh, Central and South America, there has been a huge movement of women and street art and using it politically. Um, there's a great mini doc over at Refinery29 about um, Pamela Castro in Rio de Janeiro, who's a political feminist street art whose work particularly calls attention to violence against women and female subjugation. And in a lot of these countries, you do have very real issues, not only with things like domestic violence, but also, you know, street harassment just Mm -hmm. running rampant and how these women are overtaking these public spaces through art. And it's incredible to me. Yeah. And so frequently Castro will paint like, a you know, a traditionally or conventionally beautiful model like woman, but with a black eye or with blood running down her face or something to that effect to really sort of grab your attention. Because on first look, you know, I scanned through some of her pictures and I, you know, at first glance, you might just think, oh, there's just a pretty woman. And then you look closer and you realize, oh, and there's blood coming out of her eye. You know, like there's very intense imagery related to her effort to counteract violence. And there's an entire group in Cairo called Women on Walls, which organizes female street artists to create murals centered around women's empowerment. And uh, Mira Shahade is one such artist. So it's I mean, it's just incredible to see wherever you go around the globe and especially if you end up in these countries that have a lot of gender imbalance going on, how political the street art becomes. Yeah. And how it's interesting to see how gender is used as a tool across the world. Even that artist, Iko, who's frequently compared with Banksy, says that I'm working hard. So the men have started to recognize me as one of the top five women street artists on the planet. I have to keep going and showing them I can paint. And like, I get the sentiment but it's almost like, wait, but what? So you're pitting yourself against men, too, instead of wanting to be like just an amazing or top five street artist like you still are. It sounds like and maybe I need more context for this quote, but like it sounds like, oh, OK, well, wait, you're cool with just being on the women's list. Or maybe that's also something that it has taken an attitude that it's taken for her to get brought into the fold at that top tier Banksy level yeah, that, success. Yeah. I mean, this does go back to everything we've ever talked about on the podcast about how you tend to have to work twice as hard to be where 
men are, especially in terms of like the workplace, but here in terms of street art. And I wonder in this kind of culture of playing the, you know, Gillian Flynn trademark cool girl is one path toward that, too. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Again, like I don't want to put words in Ico's mouth at all. Um, But the whole thing is just it's really fascinating to look at how we focus on and the media covers the medium and the images themselves and focus so much on the femininity that we kind of endow into just the art rather than focusing more on what the gender might be saying in the message of the piece. I wonder if, you know, if the message sometimes, especially for street artists in the United States, if the message sometimes gets lost because we're so focused on like, oh, it's a woman doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious, though, to hear from people about this. We've talked a lot about gender in this episode, but I mean, I just think it's I think it's so, so, so powerful for women to be taking over these public spaces like this. Well, because it links back to something bigger than street art, it links back to women being safe in public spaces. Absolutely. Yes. Do we want more? women street artists and street artists of color and different ages. Like, yes, absolutely. But this all links back to people being able to be safe and respected in public spaces. And through this research, Caroline, do you have a new fave? I really, really love Vexta. I I do love her whimsical, like even if Vexta, I don't care what Vexta's gender is, but I love the whimsical illustrations and the fact that, you know, she'll paint a skirt that almost looks like it's made up of kites or something. Like it's very, I love, I love that look. Yeah. I'm newly obsessed with Swoon. Mm, Yeah. I want to, I want to know everything about her and someone we didn't mention who's a very mysterious figure that. Like Banksy, we're not sure whether it is a dude or a lady, um, Princess Hijab in France, who just goes around tagging hijabs on um, women and advertisements. I'm not saying that she's necessarily like one of my favorites because it's not it's not like artistic necessarily. Um, obviously, it's more of the message. Um, but yeah. Swoon's Miguel right now. <laughs> um, so, listeners, we want to know who your favorites are. If you are a street artist or just an artist in general, and if this has resonated with you, we would love to hear your insights on it. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working past the whole nine to five. So if you're still making those time consuming trips to the post office, y'all, you need a better way. For you, there is stamps.com. With stamps.com, you get the postage you need the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. It is quick and easy. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Plus, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. And right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for a special offer. It's a four-week trial with a $110 bonus offer, including postage at a digital scale. So get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter stuff. And now back to the show. Well, I have a letter here from Helen in response to our two part series on abortion. Uh, she says, I want to write and share my and my family's story and to thank you for covering this important topic on your show. I was already familiar with most of the history you shared through the gender studies classes I took in college, my work as a volunteer at Planned Parenthood, as well as my own family's stories. Even with this prior knowledge, it was wonderful to hear the history again, especially with the current political climate around abortion and reproductive rights. Women's health and reproductive rights have long been held close to my heart due to my upbringing. 
My parents have always been proud supporters of Planned Parenthood after their time in their 20s when it was their only affordable form of health care and a way for them to delay having children until they'd established careers. Both of my grandmothers are also very adamant about fighting for reproductive rights and are aghast at the current trend of taking abortion and birth control access and rights away. One of my grandmothers, who grew up very poor and with little access to services, will often tell me, we already fought for these rights. How can this be happening? My other grandmother has often shared the story of how one of her childhood friends lost her life at the age of 16 because of an illegal abortion. Hearing these stories from my grandmothers and the history of abortion in America helps to inspire me to continue supporting reproductive rights and health care access for all women. Thanks, Helen. I've got a letter here from Peggy, also about our abortion episode, part one in particular. And she writes, particularly interesting to me was your discussion of the professionalization of medicine and its impact on reproductive rights. I'm working on a master's degree and recently did a short research project on the history of midwives in Spain from the 14th to the 18th century. Through my limited research, I was able to find various laws and medical texts that show a continued effort to exclude women from the profession. While money is always part of the reason for wanting to exclude women, it was also considered very dangerous to allow women to work as midwives because they had the power to baptize a baby if they believed the baby would die before a priest would arrive to perform the rite. Additionally, medical texts refer to women as careless, impatient, and ignorant. Surgeons attended births that were considered dangerous and difficult and were allowed to use forceps. Use of any tools by midwives was strictly prohibited. As the professionalization of medicine progressed, stricter and stricter laws were passed in an effort to control who could attend a birth. In 1750, a new law was passed that listed a series of requirements that must be met by anyone who wanted to practice midwifery. One, travel to a government office to submit the application. Two, submit proof of pure blood, which was proof the applicant was not of Muslim or Jewish heritage. Hello. Three, pay 100 reals. Four, submit a certificate of baptism. And five, submit the written testimony of the doctor or midwife they had practiced under for at least two years. And if this individual was dead, they had to present a burial certificate. While these might seem like simple requirements, literacy among women was very low and women needed permission to travel and have money. In 1780, the word comadron, or mad midwife, appears for the first time in the Royal Spanish Academy Dictionary. I hope you find this information as fascinating as I do. I have more info, but tried to pull the most interesting bits. We found it interesting indeed, and also a little bit enraging. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing, Peggy. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about women in street art, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 